Welcome to Profiles. I'm Annie Corrigan. Few chamber groups can boast the accomplishments of the Canadian brass. Over 90 CDs released, some 80 compositions written for the group, and 40 years performing music all over the world. And they're certainly not showing any signs of stopping now. Their 2010 nationwide tour brought them to Bloomington, Indiana. While here, they spoke about the group's history, shared some laughs, and played some music live in the WFIU studios. Brandon, we'll start with you. Names and instruments. Brandon Reidenauer, and I play trumpet. I'm Jeff Nelson, and I play horn. I'm Gene Watts, and I play trombone. I'm Chris Coletti, and I play trumpet. Uh, Chuck Dellenbach, and I'm an artist. <laughs> an artist. <laughs> yeah, on the tuba. Well, I heard Good trumpet and horn and trombone. I think you know we're, we're musical artists. We're artisans. But we are our instruments, right? That's well, uh, that's what I was worried about. <laughs> you are the tuba. I do play tuba. Yes. Well, so you're celebrating 40 years as the Canadian brass. First of all, congratulations to the two of you. You were there at the very beginning. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. you this is so Gene, and I was there at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how many more years do you think we have of the Canadian brass? Well, since I'm one of the, uh, the founders, <laughs> along with Chuck, no, I'm actually Chuck speaking. I know it's hard. <laughs> we think that uh, we, we passed a critical moment where uh, the Canadian brass could have had j- just a certain uh, – a time span kind of timed out. A certain group of guys got together uh, to to make music, and it would have a certain length of time. But I think we passed a critical moment where, at this point, the the legendary status of the group and the youth of our our new members it has an opportunity now to to really make significant contribution to the future of live performance and the musical world in general. You're right. You have two very young members. We'll talk to you guys in a second. Mm-hmm. Gene, so many members have come and gone. So what's it like grooming the new members? How do you pick new members? Well, you know, I think we were pretty solid until about 30 years. <laughs> the last 10 years we've had a few changes because it's, it's really difficult to find the right people that, that really will dedicate themselves to an art form that such as brass quintet ensemble playing is and really make a full-time job of it. So there are a lot of good players, and uh, we've been through several of them, <laughs> eight or nine. So he said I, I didn't keep, keep count. Something like that. Uh, but they're all wonderful players and good people. For some reason, you know, you have to be a wonderful player and want to do what we're doing. And you can look at it on one side. It's, you give up a lot, you know, and, and all, but you gain a lot. There's nothing, I think, I mean, it's a blessing to be able to perform a hundred, two hundred concerts a year for forty years. After forty years, you might say, "Well, maybe that's enough," but <laughs> but it is a blessing, and uh, it changes you, and it changes your whole status. Performance is a magical thing that happens between performers and audiences, and it's well worth it. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk to the true trumpet players here. You guys are the newest members, the mm-hmm. the youngest members of the group. What's it like joining the Canadian Brass? It's awesome. Done. <laughs> it's awesome and that's it. Say yes or no. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Did you listen to this group when you were growing up as a young trumpet player? Of course. I mean, I mean, I never thought I'd even meet them in person, let alone be playing you know, with them at all. So yeah. that's, you know, I'm still sort of getting over that. <laughs> this is coming out for the first time, by the way. <laughs> You're a little starstruck still. Uh, yeah. And Brandon, tell me how you joined the group. There's a, a little bit of story in, in your bio about how you joined 
Yeah, I met them, like Chris, at the Music Academy of the West in Santa Barbara, California. It was the summer of 2005 when I was there, and we got to know each other. Uh, they were there for two weeks, and then the following summer, I went out and played with them for a few days. Things went well, and then gradually started playing more and more concerts with the group, and then here we are now. It's a pretty cool story. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I overheard... That was the short version. The short version. The long version That was the is... cool version, Chris. <laughs> oh, oh. Sorry. Well, we won't, we won't get the long version. Time constraints. I overheard an audience member actually saying, after your Penny Lane solo, how hard must that be? I wonder how long it took him to learn that. <laughs> is it really hard? Many nights without sleep. And, uh, 20 and, years. <laughs> and practicing, only taking about two or three breaths an hour. <laughs> yeah. And uh, a lot of pressure building up in the head, veins <laughs> popping, arteries, capillaries just exploding. You know, uh, it's very, very, very colorful practice sessions to, uh, Chuck be able to you know learn how to play. You know what's interesting about Penny Lane, and we've observed Brandon taking this on as a, a, a feature piece. Uh, we actually met the fellow that made the original recording, Mason is his name. We met him in England, and he was astonished at the length of our Penny Lane because from his point of view, he went into a studio and he had an array of trumpets and he played, how about this sound, how about that sound? And the actual snippet that's on the recording is very short. Mm-hmm. And the standard has just gone sky high. This was an impossible task when he did it to play a few measures of the Penny Lane solo. And now it's been turned into a full-length uh, feature piece for Brandon. So when he's playing this Penny Lane, it's it's probably 20 times more difficult than what was impossible back in Mason's day. So as Gene pointed out, the talent pool for Canadian Brass, for example, is so high now that someone like Brandon joins us and he's doing an impossible task and he's standing in front. And I was impressed last night, Brandon. I have to tell you, we're at Indiana University with you know, finest music students in the world, and they're all there in the audience, and Brandon's standing in front of them. And I knew he'd do it because I have another little anecdote about this. Uh, there's Brandon playing Penny Lane in front of all these uh, young students. You know, they're all saying to themselves, wait a minute, I'm about the same age as him. I think I better start practicing. <laughs> but we knew he could do it because we were playing with the New York Philharmonic in, uh, in uh, Lincoln Center, and ten of us, five principal players of the august New York Philharmonic and four of us and Brandon standing in front of all of us playing Penny Lane and got a standing ovation. In the middle of the concert. In the middle of the concert. <laughs> so, so we just love having Brandon go out and play Penny Lane. We know it. He, we, we know he'll come it's through. It's harder to talk to Brandon. It wasn't scary. Was it? <laughs> no, that was fun. That was, that was a fun night. Well, let's hear Penny Lane, then, performed live in the WFIU studios by the Canadian Brass. Thank you. 
Brandon Ridenour playing the piccolo trumpet in that performance of Penny Lane, music written by Lennon and McCartney and arranged for brass quintet by Chris Dedrick. You're listening to Profiles. I'm Annie Corrigan, and my guests today are the five members of the Canadian Brass. <laughs> Jeff, I want to talk to you. You are a, you are a busy man. So you are our Bloomington, Indiana University, Jacob School of Music horn professor. We love you around here. You've got a family. Your performance career, as with everyone in the group, it's busy in and outside of Canadian brass. How do you do it? How do you keep your schedule straight? Uh, one day at a time, and I'll, I'll sleep next decade, I guess. I don't know. It's all such great things, and it's so energizing, you know. Mm-hmm. But I'm definitely stopping a lot of those things, I'll say, officially amongst <laughs> my colleagues here. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. I've, I've learned what's, what is, I think, too much. I've now found that. and it's But everything I do, and it's such an amazing compliment, uh, the performing. I get to really uh, try out what I teach, you know, and I get to uh, learn about that and bring it back to my students. And then what I teach, I get to try out. You know, it's a, a really great compliment of each other. Yeah. You played a Paganini selection. Fantastic. Thank it was God. amazing. Talk to me about playing uh, these, these war horse pieces that weren't written for the horn. But what's that like? Again, exciting. A great opportunity to, you know, um, groundbreak new repertoire, which is what Canadian Brass has done and for their whole 40 years, you know, and what I got to see when I first saw the group. And so we get to be the groundbreakers and creating new repertoire and hear a piece on the radio and go, oh, we should do that, you know. And that's one of the and one of the great things, I think, about a 40-year history of a group is the way we select that repertoire and really how many filters it goes through within the group. And then before it gets to a public stage, there's so many filters through it. And this group is just genius level filtering you know all the orchestral stuff that when i joined the group i was like oh we should do Mahler one you know <laughs> and stuff but you know why redo stuff that's better in its original form and we understand that as well so that selection process is done very well by us i think learning about it and in addition to the arrangements uh you guys have commissioned new works so you have a lot of uh new works for brass quintet out there thanks to the canadian brass and you know, you play all these arrangements and things, but you say that the music of the Baroque is really 
what touches you guys the most, and especially music of J.S. Bach. What is it about the music of Bach that works so well with the Canadian brass? Well, a lot of it is organ music, which sort of imitates the brass in a way. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, very straightforward, very solid. That's why it's so exciting to play, and it, and it says things. You know. And, and equal voicing people. from Chuck, from, from my point of view as a tuba player, what Bach immediately brought to the, to the experience of playing a brass quintet was equal voicing. Mm-hmm. Because uh, very often, we're living in a day now of melody and bass, and I think the, the fugue era was you know, really wonderful as a point of reference to bring an ensemble together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Chris, of course, Chuck would say that as the tuba player. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, here we um, go. <laughs> that's I mean, Bach. I mean, particularly Bach. I mean, is something that sounds even amazing on a cell phone. I mean, it's just the, it's the lines that just like Chuck's saying just work so well, and it, and it's beautiful to hear it on an organ. But like playing it in brass, it's great because each line gets to express itself as an individual line, and hearing them work together with every line being, you know, working together like that, it's sort of like a I don't know, a metaphor for life, I guess. You know, everybody working together with mm-hmm. these different things. It's it's pretty amazing, an amazing experience to be in that texture. Yeah. The One test those- the, the test for us was a, a moment we were in Corpus Christi, Texas at an international organ convention. We were invited to be the performers. We thought, okay, here we go. And we played the uh, Toccata and Fugue. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the end, the organists said to us that they, just what Chris mentioned here, the clarity of line they could follow the lines uh, so nicely. And uh, we thought that was kind of the litmus test finally for brass quintet that we could take these on in a legitimate fashion and bring something to it. In some ways, we're almost like organ stops on, on box organ. Mm-hmm. If, if you think about the concept of a sound, this you know, think of the reality of this sound on an on a, a instrument like that. Then the flip side to this is that there are some critics out there who – question, I guess, the legitimacy of the brass quintet as a serious chamber ensemble. Are they still alive? Yeah. That, that, <laughs> Believe it or we're not. We're talking 70s. No, I think that that's long gone. Talk about that. Talk to those people who think that, you know, you guys got nothing on string quartets, for instance. Well, well I, we don't, really. I mean, the string quartet <laughs> has a lot going for it, and, and there's no way we're out to replace a string quartet. But they're not brass players. So, I mean, we have to express what sounds best on brass. And it is, it's a different concept, really. But it's still chambers, still four or five people that have to play together and in time and agree on what you're, you're performing. So you're doing something that reaches an audience. And uh, some people like, you know, Strauss and some people like Mozart. <laughs> you don't say, well... You know, <laughs> Mozart just wipes out Strauss. <laughs> well, here's a challenge for we're talking about young trumpet players, but taking taking on a an ensemble like this, the challenge and opportunity for the future. String quartet has 300 years history, and a brass quintet has maybe 40 years history. The Chicago, uh, and this is kind of interesting. Harvey Phillips is right here in in, in Bloomington. Harvey Phillips was part of the New York uh, brass quintet. And we feel that this was a prototype. We inherited that form. So when we started in 1970, it was already established two trumpets, French horn, trombone, and tuba. And this was what the New York Brass Quintet did. So we only have this very short history, 60 years, I guess. If you think about it, 
we have created an opportunity with Canadian Brass. We've made it a legitimate ensemble. We've brought it to the major concert stages. We've played Carnegie Hall. We've played Chicago Orchestra Hall. Now the development can start. Now, now the music starts filling in. While we were busy creating a repertoire we could take out to the public and making sure we had Bach, and we, we, we actually took a masterpiece approach. If we're going to arrange or adapt a piece of music, make sure it's the finest music possible. Meanwhile, in the background, from our point of view, we were commissioning constantly. We have over 80 major compositions that have been written for us. But as you might expect, of that, a masterpiece would be a handful of pieces that might still be played 10 years from now. So the opportunity now is to create a, a repertoire that becomes a core standard repertoire. We need the Haydn's and the Brahms and the, the Beethoven like the strings have. The brass needs a core repertoire, and it's still searching. That, that's one of the missions for sure. And one of the missions of the Canadian brass is, is to create that. Absolutely, and I think it's been overlooked because obviously – we're playing to two or 3,000 people. It's a mixture. I think we're more like the, the recitals were, say, in the 30s and 40s, from what I read, where they were mixture recitals. The streamlined recital, where you're supposed to be really quiet and listen to only Chopin, is a fairly new invention on the music scene. And for a brass quintet to take very modest music, only contemporary and play it to an, a large audience. It's not going to work, and it didn't work. We, we inherited nothing in the sense of a career path. So we, we were creating that as we went and making a program that was uh, sufficiently interesting to us and gave us challenges but that could also be shared with an audience. We had to take that masterpiece approach. Wouldn't it be great if we had Beethoven? You know, wouldn't it be great? Yes, and it will happen. But it takes time and, and energy. And meanwhile, we need to develop an audience that even cares. And there's the key because basically that's not in place. And, and I think that's what we've spent a lot of time carefully uh, concerned about is creating an audience that's not just for us but shared. Brass groups now uh, – and, and we've watched this. We, we made books back in the 70s to help young brass players. And those books now are out around the world. We're, after a concert, invariably, we're signing these books in Japan and Korea and Germany and Norway. These books, we feel, have helped start this idea of a core repertoire and, a, and a, an approach to performance. Let's listen now to music commissioned in 2004 for the Canadian Brass by the Music Academy of the West. Music by Bramwell Tovey. This is the Santa Barbara Sonata. <laughs>
the Canadian Brass performing music written for them by Bramwell Tovey, the Santa Barbara Sonata. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And the Funeral Chapel of Bloomington, providing funeral and crematory arrangement services for the chapel, church, and graveside. The Funeral Chapel, to honor and commemorate. 333-4400 or online at pdcfuneralchapel.com. This is Profiles. I'm Annie Corrigan, and today I'm speaking with members of the Canadian Brass. Well, let's talk to young musicians now since we are at the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music. And there are hundreds of people over there who want to make a life in music, as the five of you are. Let's give advice to these young musicians. What do you have to do? Most importantly, stay on course. There are so many things that throughout your life, throughout high school, throughout college that get thrown in your way that can be uh, very easy and big distractions. And some people let those things get the better of them and then some people don't let those things bother them. So if you uh, allow yourself to not be altered uh, or affected by these distractions that are thrown in your way, which happen all the time, uh, and if you just stay on, stay on course, you're you're bound to be more successful and get to that goal and that idea, that very clear idea, which is another important thing, is to have a clear idea of what it is that you want, of what you want to get uh, out of music or out of whatever it is that you're striving for in your profession. If you have a very clear idea and you're very focused about how you're going to get there, uh, most likely you'll be able to get there. Yeah, that's very true. And it's also really important to be really honest with yourself as far as um, what's working and what's not. I think that's like a really big point. So a lot of people you could see playing recitals and whatever and it's hard to get a real accurate cross-section of who your audience is going to be when you're in school because you're begging your friends to come to recitals that are you know, towards the end of the year. There's probably two or three a day and then you know, if you're a popular person, you get them to show up and then you, you, know, they, they, you force them to sit through a, a concert and they might have some fun but really you want to know what is working and what's really not working and do you want to be playing for people that are in college do you want to be you know and really there's no answer to that i mean there's no formula to say oh, okay well i want an audience that's going to be you know all supermodels and you know around my age and then i'm going to write this music to tailor to them it's not like that you really just the only real solution is doing what you really 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 like a lot and then only the best possible things out of that are going to work really that's another thing to do. Like, don't you're not going to fake anybody out by doing something that you think that they like, you know. That you're not committed to. That you're not mm-hmm. committed to. Yeah. It really has to be what you're passionate about. And I mean, there's a lot of performers out there that would that are. It's amazing that they're that they're as popular as they are, but they're just really into doing what they do. Um, and I'm just I'm every day I'm discovering new performers that I you know I can't believe are even real. You know, it's like they're so weird. Like. I don't know. I just started watching Tiny Tim, by the way. I just discovered this guy. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, what is that? You know? And yeah. it's like there's something about it. Like I can't think of one thing about it that's good, but together it's amazing. It's like one of the strangest. <laughs> anyway, you know, that, that's one of millions of examples. The IU professor, uh, give advice to your students on how to make a, a life in music. Go practice right now. I was going to say, don't listen to the radio. Go, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. What are you doing? Get up. Go get your horn. Well, I think another most important thing – my students know I have many most important things uh, – is to be performance training. So you're not in that room learning to operate a trumpet or a French horn or anything. But you're, you're, everything you do is geared toward the performance. And everything in your performance must connect to the audience 
or you, or you can succeed at performing in your practice room. <laughs> you don't need an audience. But then you at some point need food. And, you know, and so <laughs> it is about connecting and that's a two-way thing. It's not just communicating well out. I think it is understanding the, the trade-off and the connection between you and your audience. So it's have everything geared while you're picking up your instrument to a, your performance setting. If you find yourself getting nervous, one uh, thing that causes that is deciding that this performance matters more. But I think I say if you ever have room to make it matter more, you just haven't made all the other notes matter enough. <laughs> just idiot-proof yourself and make every note matter ultimately and toward the performance. You know? And then make excellence your goal. And then if you don't end up doing music, you're still set to succeed because you'll be excellent at whatever you do. So that's another simple way to wake up in the morning. Good advice. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the collaboration process then. Five distinct musicians, five distinct personalities. Let's talk to you guys over here. What's it like collaborating in a group like this? How do you make it work? Uh, Jeff here. The one simple rule that we are um, happily ruled by is if you can't get one person on your side, you have to drop your idea. <laughs> if you have one, and it's great in a, in a group of five with an odd number. You're, I guess you're really odd if no one's on your side. <laughs> um, and that, you know, and the other, and another rule within the group when collaborating well, when things are optimal, is always moving forward. So you're talking about what to do and solutions and instead of basking in the problems and talking about what's wrong, that's interesting for a second, but we move forward and talk about our next steps all the time. And that's really useful, whether in rehearsal or in, you know, at lunch, it's usually a business meeting. So it's that uh, approach helps keeping us moving forward. You know, having arrangers within the group too is another powerful collaboration. That's something Brandon... Bring both right. of these guys. Whoever to. arranged the piece gets to, you know, be in charge. <laughs> and keep, keep them arranging. Yeah, that's why they're aggressively arranging. So they can. <laughs> Excellent. Here's an example of music arranged by members of the Canadian Brass. Some tangos by Astor Piazzolla, reimagined by trumpet player Joseph Bergstaller. <laughs> Music of Astor Piazzolla arranged for brass quintet by trumpeter Joseph Bergstaller, the Canadian brass performing some tangos. One thing the Canadian brass is good at, <laughs> one of many things, <laughs> connecting with the audience, absolutely, and especially the two of you. You guys have such a shtick, and it's, it's comedic, and it's fun, and you befriend your audiences, really. We were on your side, and we were mm -hmm. laughing with you. Why is that important? Why is it important to connect with your audience in that friendly way? We've made a point of being ourselves on stage. We realized that what we talked about a little bit earlier, that there was no path set out for a brass quintet, so there were no rules. 
and regulations. And we also knew that our peer group would probably uh, steer us astray, that other brass players would not be of a lot of use in trying to figure out how to make our way. So we went out and we started searching, and we decided to make that search a a journey with people that came to our concerts. And at first, there were a lot of family and friends in our audiences, so we'd just talk to them. And we realized that a lot of things that we found very normal and common, like putting a piece of brass on our lips every day, was very unusual to someone in an audience. We realized that we had um, unique things to talk about, that it wasn't as normal as we thought. Uh, for example, piccolo trumpet. People, when we started, they, hadn't even, they had no idea what this instrument was. You'd see a piccolo trumpet would come up in a trumpet player's hand and the, uh, everybody's neck, they're craning, they're trying to see yeah. what it is. So we thought, well, let's tell them what it is. So we would actually describe it or talk about it. And what we tried to do is not limit personality. In other words, we let our personalities into what we were doing. We're not actors. We're not comedians. We're just who we are and what we, what we try to do is just be ourselves on stage and share that. And if people find some things funny or humorous, we're lucky. And then we try to remember what that is. Uh, we've never had much luck with people writing scripts for us or, or doing that sort of thing. It just it, it doesn't work because we aren't trained actors and we don't uh, take that time. Or maybe we should now that I think of it. That's probably <laughs> exactly what we should do. But I think that we're just sharing ourselves. So it could be at a, a, a dinner with our family talking about something or it could be us standing on stage and talking to our friends. And we, we treat the audience as family or friends. And I think that's what set us apart right then, when we started, right then, at the end of the 60s, there was kind of a feeling that great performers were being ignored and performers were feeling like, well, this is a shame. I have all this talent and all this music that I can play and the audience turns their back on me and, and they obviously don't know anything about music. And we looked at it from the other standpoint. We're performers. We're trying to get them interested in what we're doing. It's our responsibility. If the audience is not having fun or enjoying or having maybe being enlightened by a, a strong piece of music, then that's our role in life. How do we bring that to them and, and make their life different? How can we make them feel like this is something I really want to be part of and I, next time you're here, I'm going to come back? And for a performer, it's key. Your performance is one thing. Getting people to come a second time, that's what really, really matters. And um, we've been very fortunate to have an audience that has stuck with us. Been coming back for 40 years. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think when, a, when an audience comes, they want to know who you are. Mm -hmm. right? And however you can express that, I think, if it's, if it's honest and it's really open and it really sets that connection, then the performer has gained a lot and the audience has gained a lot. And that's, that's never one way. So if, if you're getting a lot out of the performance, so is the audience. And it's not a matter of manipulation or, you know, we'll, we'll get them with this or get them with that. It's, it's you giving. Mm -hmm. And the more you give, I think the more that relationship happens. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, we'd love to hear you guys play a little bit. Let's hear some music now on WFIU's Profiles. A Toccata by the 17th century Italian composer Frescobaldi. A live performance by the Canadian Brass. Oh. 
Canadian Brass performing live in the WFIU studios. That was a toccata arranged for Brass Quintet written by Frescobaldi. This has been Profiles with the Canadian Brass. I'm Annie Corrigan. Thanks for listening. The program you just heard was recorded in February of 2010. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Pascash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And the Funeral Chapel of Bloomington, providing funeral and crematory arrangement services for the chapel, church, and graveside. The Funeral Chapel, to honor and commemorate. 333-4400 or online at pdcfuneralchapel.com. 
Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.